good Monday morning. Here we are, first Monday in May. Uh, this is being recorded about five weeks earlier, but still having to wear a sweater here in Tennessee. Hope that you're having a lovely Monday. We're going to continue on this, how we got our Bibles and how this was all put together. The true story, not the magical or semi-magical myths that we've been handed over the years. Now, most of these have been more of a lesson format where you're going to have you know, one or two important points that we're going to get to during the, the 15 to 20 minutes we try to, to limit these two on a Monday, not always successfully. But these are going to be more discussions because we just need to talk about, and stories, we need to talk about this. It wasn't until fairly recently that two multi-multi-billionaires decided to start collecting Bibles, that something became just too well known to ignore anymore. One, a founder of a uh, huge hobby store, shall we say, <clears throat> that uh, people really love, and that is overtly Christian. Another is a billionaire restaurateur. They started collecting Bibles. They wanted all of the old medieval or early Bibles that they could get. Almost all of these printed, not uh, handwritten manuscript, because those, when they're found, are usually kept very in careful situations by universities and museums, such as at Trinity in, in Ireland. But they got the printed ones. And what they found was astonishing. Oh, by the way, we have to say, we have to say that at least in the, in the case of one of these billionaires, he bought a lot of fakes and did not realize it until after he'd created his museum, <clears throat> put it on the road, and some archeologists and, and others started pointing out that these were fakes. So we're weeding out the fakes. We're aware they were fake. Um, that happens so often in archeology span because everybody wants to find something and careers depend upon you publishing about new finds, but also there are a lot of people who need to make money to feed their family, and so they make fakes and sell them as if they were real, and, and they're really, really good at it. So just weeding out the fakes and looking at all these Bibles from the 1500s, 1600s, and how we got to that point, we will. We'll talk about that later. We found out something. But before I tell you, I want to tell you something else. When I was a boy, you probably heard this as well, that the Bible is not a book. It's a library of books. We would even be shown a slide on a film strip or there would be a poster and they would show us that it would be like library shelves with books. And there are 39 books in the Old Testament and there are 27 in the New. And then they would divide them. Here are the books of the law. Here are the books of history. Here are the books of poetry or wisdom. Here are the major prophets. Here are the minor prophets. And as we've already talked about, uh, they, these are not the way that the Jewish people organized them, but this is the way that the West organized them. And then you go into the New Testament, and you have as well the four gospels, then you have the book of history, then you have the epistles, the letters, and then you have revelation or prophecy at the end. So that's very handy. Now, what would have blown our minds growing up 
is that if we had gone back in time, if we could hover like a drone over the pulpits of great, powerful, very well-respected preachers to this day, people like Jonathan Edwards or Moody or Fanny, Charles Spurgeon, for goodness sake, George Whitefield, John Wesley, John Newton, when they climbed into the pulpit, because pulpits were usually higher than the common floor, you would take a few steps up to this generally octagonal uh, position, and they open up their Bibles. If we could peer over their shoulders, we would see that every single one of them didn't have a Bible with 66 books. They had 80. And that all of these all of these until about 1885 held 80 books. And of course here we're talking about the Apocrypha, other books. But when I was growing up, I was told, no, no, those were never accepted by Christians. Those were only accepted by Catholics. And I apologize to my Catholic uh, audience. I know we have a lot of them. In my tribe, we didn't call you Christian or consider you Christian. And that was wrong. Uh, but I have to report, right? This is the way it was taught in Protestant denominations of all sorts was that we had never taken those seriously and the Jewish people never took those seriously. And so those are spurious books and you can only find them in the Catholic Bibles. And sure enough, when I went to libraries and looked, because once again, I'm a data hound. And if I see a thread, someone's going to lose a sweater. I'm going to go dig, go as deep as I can. And I would find Catholic versions of the Bible. It could be Jerusalem Bible, the Confraternity version, whichever one was available. And there are generally three or four in print at any given time with different levels of, uh, of acceptance by the Catholic Church. When I would look, yes, there between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where we'd always been told God had gone silent for 400 years and said nothing, written nothing. Here are these books. But it was only in the Catholic Bibles. And that was very obvious when I looked at the others. Well, the reason it was very obvious is we didn't have any books in any of the libraries that I had access to as a, a young man, a teenager, a middle schooler on up. We didn't have any access to any books like an 1885 Bible and earlier. Had we had that, we would have found out something. We would have found out something that maybe the King James only people need to deal with too. The King James only crowd says that only the King James version is acceptable to God. Only the King James version is blessed by God. And we may have to do a couple of Monday mornings on this um, because it's just not acceptable. It's absurd in, histor in historical terms, linguistic terms, in terms of available manuscripts, in terms of the way that King James put his little fingers in every aspect of that translation and, and bent it to his will. But it's also absurd because not a one of these King James only Bible people has a legitimate, real King James Bible. They have revised ones, heavily revised, repeatedly revised. They've gone through revision after revision after revision, and in 1885 is when 
they dropped the Apocrypha. That's not 1611, that's 1885. So whenever somebody tells me that they, they believe the King James Version is the only acceptable translation, I say, which one? And it usually really messes them up and they go into denial. So one of these things that, these, that has really benefited us are these two billionaires that started collecting Bibles. And the evidence is overwhelming. You don't find Bibles without the Apocrypha and then you don't find them with. A decision had been made. Until the dawn of the, eight, the 19th century, the Christian church taught that these books were valuable. Now they generally would have a note in there. Now this note did not come from God. This note came from the printers, or this note came from the translation team. This note came sometimes added later by the religious leaders that just wanted to say, let's make sure. So none of this came from God. This was pasted uh, there to explain away some of the value. Now they were still in the Bible, but they would say these books are valuable, considered valuable for instruction, history, context but they're not considered equal to the inspired books of the Bible. Some Bibles had that little qualifier in there, some did not. Some said, you know, basically, they, you know, don't look at it as, as, as powerful as the Gospel of Mark, but it's still something God wants us to have and preserve. I many times sat in the pew and heard preachers say, we don't accept the Apocrypha because in the New Testament, Every one of the Old Testament books is quoted, but the Apocrypha is never quoted. That's not true. It is referenced, quoted, alluded to, I think we could say hundreds of times. We can certainly say well over a hundred times. Something is said that alludes to a story that comes from the Apocrypha or an absolute quote. Sometimes it's really in your face, like in the books of Jude and 2 Peter. Other times it's a bit more subtle, but it's very obvious that they knew these stories, hallowed these stories, and they carried them about in their head, which means they would have had to read them or sat and listened to them read in a public, worshipful gathering, time after time. Most of them would not own a copy back then, so they'd have to hear it and go visit a copy if they wanted to read it. Now there were some disagreements about which books belonged in the Apocrypha and which ones didn't, and which ones were useful and which ones were not. But those were usually really around just a few books. Luther believed that the quote, letter to the Laodiceans was valuable, useful, and belonged in the Bible. But most Roman Catholic Bibles left that one out. They also, most Catholic Bibles also um, leave out Second Esdras, or as it's usually said in, in Europe, two Esdras, and the Prayer of Manasseh. Uh, if you don't know about the Prayer of Manasseh, it is a fascinating book. There is, when, when you go through the Old Testament and you look at the kings, Manasseh is the worst. Absolutely awful. There's nothing good can be said about him in the book of Kings. But in the book of Chronicles, they tie a bow at the end and say at the very end he repented and it was all good. Well, the prayer of Manasseh grows out of that Chronicles version where he does this prayer of repentance and how God is right. And 
It was used as a vehicle to tell the people God can redeem even a Manasseh. Now, whether it is historically true or not, almost every scholar says no. It was a later edition. But the theology of it was valuable and, and the hope in it was valuable. So it was cherished and it was kept, but it was not officially put in the Roman Catholic Bibles. And so we have another confusion here. This, the 14 books that we call the Apocrypha, it's really whose Apocrypha you're reading as to how they count those books and which ones made it in or out. They, um, they are in the Septuagint. Remember, we talked about the Septuagint, this translation uh, of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek that comes out of Africa, out of Egypt. Uh, the Jewish people in later times, centuries after Jesus, would reject the Septuagint version, instead um, relying upon the Masoretic text, because they said the Septuagint version had been too Christianized. They didn't, they didn't trust it. But Paul's favorite version was the Septuagint. He quoted from it all the time. And guess what? Septuagint had all of the 14 books we call the Apocrypha. And when later, much later, like in 406 in Carthage, again in Africa, uh, councils meet, met to finalize the, the canon of scripture, they included all 14, 400 years after Jesus. And a church officially in North Africa said, these belong in the Bible. And if you're not aware of this, the Jews have had a long, long presence in North Africa. Um, you can take a look at, um, at, at, they even had an island there that they basically, that was their island, but also John Mark in scripture, his family came from North Africa and they had extensive properties there. And the, the church, the Coptic church says that he was their founder. And I think they've got very, very good historical reason for saying so. All Eastern Orthodox churches, and right now they're in the news, um, they continue to use them as do other Christian groups such as the Coptic Church. Coptic Church is basically Africa. Um, we could say from Ethiopia north, but there are always exceptions. It was not until the time of the Puritans. Remember them? Happy people. Actually, they were a lot happier and more fun than modern history will let you know. They sang, they danced, they smoked, they, they, they drank, but they also had some really pretty horrible rules uh, and so they got the reputation of being a joyless people regardless the puritans quit using the apocrypha and that's a that's a long complicated story on its own but they were a very small puddle in this big pond of christianity at the time the reason they really went against it was because there were some things in the apocrypha that gave the catholic church some validity for some of the ways they said and did things. And the Puritans hated the Catholics with a white hot hate. So it was, it was basically, if the Catholics like it, we don't. It was reactionary, to use a more modern term. They referred, now I'm not gonna do it. <clears throat> I was gonna refer to how Puritans, what, what they called the Catholic Church. 
um, it's space, and I'm just not going to, because the words are too awful. Um, it's more like a sex worker of Babylon. How's that? That's as close as I'm going to get. Their sermons railed against the Catholic Church. I grew up in a church that was not Puritan, was not part of the Reformed tradition at all, but I heard a lot of those sermons too. And we had those books in our library, you know, Catholic doctrine, um, um, the contradictions and there's the fall of Rome and some words that I cannot use to describe the Catholic Church. And all this, this push and pull is where these books became something to fight about. Think about this. A man and woman have been married for a number of years and now divorce has come. It's a bitter divorce. Now they're fighting over things that they never really showed value to before. You know, all of a sudden the dog which none of them really took care of, walked, loved, and like, becomes a do or die. We are dying on this hill about this dog. And it makes no sense, but that's what humans do. This was kind of like that. Churches were, people were divorcing from the one established long-term church in the West, the Roman Catholic. And so they wanted to fight over everything and decide. And these books became part of the custody battle um, the problem is, you see, some of these books support the Catholics with ideas of spiritualism. That's ah, a bad word. Um, spiritual involvement of dead believers. And so the idea of saints, that you could pray to saints, things like this. And it really, really upset those that, you know, that don't pray to saints and that we call this idolatry. There, one of these billionaires cites um, a humorous and sad scenario he has seen many times. He travels the country to allow these people, allow people to see these Bibles. I've actually met him and I've gone through the Bibles and been allowed to, to touch and go through an original, um, you know, first or second edition of King James Version and things such as this. And something like this happened when I was there, but I'll tell his story first. But he invites pastors when he goes around to come and examine the Bibles and to really appreciate the fact that God has preserved his story for us through all these years. And it's like clockwork. Some will come in, look, and get furious because all the way down to the King James Version of 1884, the Apocrypha is in there with no warning that it's not wonderful. And they will, they'll call him a heretic. They'll call these a fake. Like I said, there were some fakes, but nothing about this. And they will stomp out. Well, I, I was actually in the room when a pastor of one very predominant denomination came in and started railing against, well, this is not the Bible. And this is not, I don't know what you're trying to pull here. And he stomped out. And we all looked at each other a little quiet. Okay, that just happened. But these are real printed things. You can go to libraries in Germany. You can go to libraries, the British Museum. You can go to, um, to French, uh, the French museums. They're, they're there. We have this documented. Well, the British and Foreign Bible Society, 
that's the name of it, British and Foreign Bible Society, made their changes to the uh, King James Version in 1885 so that um, they, they wouldn't have to deal with the Apocrypha anymore. It's gone. Just a way. But people like Whitefield, Fenny, Moody, Spurgeon, they all used these books. They all had them. It's interesting how history was erased like that. But isn't that the way we do it today? We can be focused on the Ukraine war and then an actor slaps a comedian and that's all we can talk about for two weeks. And then that's gone because now the, the price of petrol's up, gasoline. And now we gotta talk about that. Oh, hang on, there's this. And we run around and we, we have zero history. Therefore, we belong to whoever has the loudest voice telling us to be afraid at that particular moment. I do talks to churches, hospitals, military, ton of military and police organizations on the concept of living in a fear-soaked world and the merchants of fear and how to combat them. Can't do that here because that by itself is a couple of hours and we've already gone 21 minutes. So even though this billionaire receives complaints from on average 4,000 pastors a year about the Apocrypha is not in the Bible, no, they weren't, or rather they, they were. And he's, he, people will yell, they were thrown out 400 years after Jesus. No, there were some groups that formed a canon without them. But the printed Bibles we've had, had them until they didn't. We'll have to talk more about that next Monday. Have a blessed Monday. If you can, subscribe here, hit the bell. It means a lot to us. And if you've got some dollars that you can give to Our Safe Harbor, it helps immensely. Uh, we really appreciate it. And if you have questions, just send me a note, patrick at rsafeharbor.com. And just very quickly, if you put a question in the comments, I might not see it, but since these are taped so far in advance. So send me an email instead, patrick at rsafeharbor.com. All right, cheers.